Welcome to Smart Humans with Slava Rubin, presented by Vincent. In this alt-investing podcast, Slava talks to amazing minds about their investment journey and finds out what it takes to make it in the markets. And now, here's your host and smart human, Slava Rubin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Smart Humans. Super excited for today's guest. Rarely do we get somebody as knowledgeable and experienced in a vertical that we all don't know about, which is crypto, Web3, and blockchain. So welcome to the show, Jake Bruckman. We have the founder and CEO of CoinFund. Welcome. Hi, Slava. Thank you so much for uh, having me on. It's my pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So we always start with the same question for the first question, which is, how did you even get into alternative investing? Where did it all start? I had a career for about 10 years, mostly in financial and and pure technology, mostly in financial technology. So I started out my career in kind of quant trading and hedge funds. And I was, you know, from the time that I started working and started making a little bit of extra savings, I've always been very interested in investing. Both my parents worked in uh, financial technology, like throughout the 90s, where they started and throughout their careers. And, you know, as someone who was like, a young person, you know, newly uh, independent from his parents was like, okay, like, I would like to find some investing opportunities for my savings. And what are some great investing opportunities? And a lot of, you know, stock markets seemed like pretty boring. Um, I was looking at things like peer to peer lending back in 2005, 2006, to try to create some like more interesting returns. Um, You know, and eventually, I found crypto. So would you say that crypto was your entry into alternative investments? Um, I would say it's been like my definitely my major play in alternative investments. Yes. I did look at stuff like peer-to-peer lending back earlier than that and options trading and things like that. Was that like a lending club or whatever or Zopa back in the day or? That's right. It was, um, it was things like lending club, uh, which started out as a very like kind of peer-to-peer system and quickly you know, a lot of banks got involved and, uh, but it had interesting, an interesting potential for returns at the time. Um, and kind of like was promised to outperform stock market investing at the time. So I imagine a good portion of your personal net worth has to do with your fund and has to do with crypto. So we'll dive into that in a second. But how about any exposure to the other asset classes like, you know, traditional art or collectibles like sports cards or real estate? Any exposure to any of that today for you? You know, I, no, <laughs> um, I ba- I hold uh, very little stock market exposure or or anything traditional. I really am an investor who uh, whose core expertise is in the blockchain technology and digital asset space. And sort of most of my bets um, have been in that space so far. But the other way I think of myself is more generally is, is like as an innovation investor. So as I would like branch out my investments, I'd probably, you know, start to look at fields like artificial intelligence, you know, space, you know, longevity, like things like that. Uh, but that's something I'm in the, in the process of doing. I've never heard that phrase put together. I like it. I think I might steal it even. What exactly does it mean to be an innovation investor? Well, just the way that I think of blockchain as being like a really disruptive, cutting edge, next generation technology. I think I tweeted this yesterday. There was like a really awesome TikTok where someone said, you know, like humans have been around for 300,000 years. And if you kind of like, if you kind of like map that onto like a whole year starting in January, ending in December, you know, essentially most of our technology has been 
created in the last like five days, right? Like December 25th on. And, you know, what that exercise shows is that technology kind of started out like really slowly and it took like hundreds of thousands of years to make basic advances like clothing and, you know, and, uh, and cities and, and, and governance. And then like, as we get to where we are today, you know, technology is moving at this incredible exponential rate. And so I really love the idea that these new technologies are starting to come at us faster and faster, almost like playing an asteroids game or something. And it's, it's kind of up to us to make investments that are, you know, going to be worthwhile. They're going to work, but also not going to be like disrupted by the next asteroid that comes your way. Um, And so innovation investing is kind of like, you know, making sense of all the new things coming at you these days. So is CoinFund going to need to get a new name? Well, I think, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, how do you think of CoinFund over the next 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? And my answer is like, yeah, of course, we're starting as, you know, world experts in blockchain technology. But just like there were, um, you know, internet funds in the early 2000s, over time, those funds have become generally tech funds because internet technology is is just technology now, right? And so if we're right about blockchain being as um, impactful as every and, and, and wide, you know, widely, widely applicable as everyone seems to think that it is, then I think crypto funds over time just become sort of tech funds. So I answer that question when prospective candidates for employment at CoinFund ask me, like, what, how do you think about CoinFund in the next 20 years? I say, well, we have an opportunity to be, you know, just a great tech investor in general. Awesome. So before we dive into specifically what's going on in crypto markets, what do you think of the macro markets? And I'm going to use that as a very general open-ended question. Where do you think we sit today with the, you know, economy, the entire market? How would you put, you know, Jake's perspective on that? Well, I would say um, kind of the most salient way that we are in touch with you know, that process is, you know, we talk to our institutional LPs at CoinFund almost every day. And the average view of our institutional investor is that we're heading into a really turbulent, volatile environment, rates are going up. Um, there's a, a recession that that's, that's possible, capital is drying up, valuations are going down. You know, it's really um, like a kind of a sour outlook on the on the traditional macro world. And the other thing that they're observing is that there is now sort of measurable, quantifiable correlation between macro factors and and at least some of the hype cap crypto, right? So Bitcoin and, and Ether has been moving uh, kind of commensurate with, you know, Fed announcements and things like that. And I think the conclusion that folks are at a high level coming to is that there's a, you know, because the the global general outlook is so bleak, that's going to translate into crypto. And I think like to some extent that could be true. And of course, today, June 13th, we're um, in quite a down market today um, in, in some of the high cap assets like Ether and Bitcoin. Um, but there's also, you know, I, I do see that uh, there's been some resiliency in private equity valuations and early crypto rounds, although we've seen some early indicators of, uh, you know, kind of valuations maybe coming down a bit. Um, we nevertheless, I, I, I think like crypto kind of moves a little bit more to its own drum in certain areas within it. And so you don't have to be in all the high cap assets necessarily. You, 
you know, I think there's, it's still possible to build a really interesting portfolio that kind of over the medium term is, is going to be like quite uncorrelated with macro. So I'm, you know, if you want to talk macro, you should chat with our head of liquid investments, Seth Gins of CoinFunny. He's absolutely the expert on this topic in our firm. Um, but my general view is, you know, macro world looks bearish and, and we as a team are a little bit more bullish on kind of crypto in that context. Got it. Well, we would love to have Seth in a future episode, but um, while we have you, do you think this is where we're in the bottom of the the market and it's going to come back up tomorrow? Is this a V? Is this a U? Is this an L where we don't know how long this kind of bottoming is going to take? Um, do you have any perspective of, do we need to take a nice step down further from here? So, uh, it might take till the end of the year. Any perspectives on any of that? Um, I, general perspectives are, this is a cyclical kind of market. We've been through many, many cycles. Um, in fact, coin fund was founded in the bare winter depths of 2015. It was a time, you know, in 2015, 2016 with Bitcoin, was range bound between two hundred and four hundred dollars for two years, and there was like nothing going on in crypto. You know, then we saw the twenty seventeen ICO boom, and then re- went right back into a two year twenty eighteen twenty nineteen. Again, severe uh, bear market in the space, and as there wasn't like very much revenue being generated anywhere, and um, people continued to kind of build infrastructure, that led us into a bull market of twenty 2020, twenty 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 one, and now we're kind of you know, we, we've slid off here. So, you know, one way to look at it, if you are a, a believer that uh, these historical cycles will tell us something about the future, is that you typically see, you know, look at the Bitcoin chart weekly over its lifetime or Ether, right? You, you typically see this huge exuberant run up, then a 50, 60, 70% retracement, then a period of uh, down market kind of building. And then the next leg uh, is usually you know, kind of an order of magnitude higher in price. And, you know, we could think of that cyclical uh, nature of, of crypto kind of continuing in the future, which would suggest that we probably have a little bit more downside here. Um, you know, I do think that we've we've crossed kind of the 1400 level in, in Ether, and that's that was a five-year, you know, all-time high. So we've broken past that kind of, strong resistance point. So we can go, we could definitely go lower. And there's going to be a period of time here where um, we're going to need to regroup, build more infrastructure, uh, and, you know, and kind of keep going. But the good news is, is that there's more people in the space than ever. There's more capital and firms operating in space than ever. There's more founders than ever. There's more Web2 people coming into Web3 than ever. There's more infrastructure than ever that are allowing us to actually take some of these technologies to market, like, you know, like DeFi apps that people can actually use on their phone and use in the store to pay for stuff. These are really exciting developments for bringing crypto to the mainstream. Um, And I think when we start to do that, we will kind of get right back to... um, you know, the sort of growth we're seeing in crypto, I mean, like the fundamental theses of protocols and uh, decentralization have not changed because of this price action. Got it. Got it. Um, so 2015, you mentioned is when you started the funds. What was it in 2014 when you're thinking about this? Why did CoinFund need to exist? Um, 
Very good question. So I came into the space through Bitcoin. I was shown Bitcoin by a friend of mine in 2011. Um, I was following Bitcoin, you know, kind of throughout that time. And it didn't like start investing in the space and really paying attention, you know, I would say like every day until the end of 2013 when I bought some Bitcoin on Coinbase on that upslope to 1200 for Bitcoin. Um, and then when I started to, when I really like understood what was happening here, what the nature of this technology was. And as technical of a person as I am, by the way, it took me a, a lot uh, of time to really understand like how Bitcoin and blockchains worked. But when it did, when there was this click, um, I really started asking the question, you know, while, while many people were, were, were very sort of obsessed with this like digital currency use case, I started asking the question, like, what else can we apply this technology to? What is blockchain good for? What is decentralization good for? What are distributed ledgers, which were not called that at the time? Um, <laughs> what are they good for? Um, you know, and if you look at the, if you look at the, you can't really find this online, but the, the original CoinFund white paper from 2015, you know, for the most part frames everything in terms of like cryptocurrencies, right? Because really the smart contract platforms were not, out in the market yet. It was not really a thing. Um, but always trying to look for, like, what are the other networks other than Bitcoin? What are they trying to do? Is Namecoin trying to do namespacing and domain registration? You know, is uh, BitShares trying to do, like, asset issuance? And really um, trying to understand, like, what um, what the broader applications of this tech are. And CoinFund was really founded to you know, look at and help the space develop those other applications of blockchain. I mean, it's now seven years later, it's going to be our seven year anniversary on July 1st. And I think that thesis has worked out dramatically well. I, I would say most of the applications of blockchain technology are not currency use cases today. There's something else. That's great. Seven years. Congratulations. Um, just to clarify for the listeners, so you're investing uh, mostly or all, correct me here, into private investments in blockchain and crypto, right? So, Or are you also investing once they're public? And I know this is somewhat gray line um, in the crypto markets, but can you clarify that? Well, we are a multi-strategy firm. And so in our set of products, we'll have um, seed funds that are mostly doing early stage venture deals, working actively with teams in the space, helping them solve sort of what we say is the full stack of problems that they face, you know, as an early stage team in, in the blockchain space. Um, we just launched a classical venture fund, which invests in series A and B, also in crypto and led by David Pakman, who joined our team full time from Venrock late last year uh, as our head of venture. Um, and that will look at deals in that stage, but it also might be Mm, like digital network deals that uh, or like treasury deals or something that are buying digital assets. And then our liquid fund, you know, will look mostly at high cap, what you might call kind of public crypto assets, meaning the high cap assets like Bitcoin and Ether and others that are trading on public markets. Um, so we kind of, as a firm, cover the gamut of uh, the, the different stages and, and opportunities in this space. That's great. And in 2015, when you launched, which of those did you start off with? Was it the seed fund? Yeah. So we had uh, like our very, very first fund, you know, it even sort of made the the case in its mandate and said, like, 
listen, we're, we want to be like just a digital asset fund. We think this is going to be the future. We think that, um, you know, this, this way of investing will become more predominant. What we learned very quickly was that the way that decentralized networks come to market eventually develops a best a set of best practices. And that best, that set of best practices is a mixture of things. It's a, it's a small private team that creates the project and they usually have an equity based private company that you can fund. It also involves building a network whose native monetization is generally using digital assets. And so, you know, when we fo- fast forward seven years from, from that time to today, you know, like a typical early stage deal in crypto looks like an investor buying a little bit of equity in that in that early company building the network and also getting a token warrant for you know future digital assets that are developed by that company by that net and maintained by that network um and so whereas we started like quite rigid what we realized is that over time we had to become more um multifarious in the in the way that we uh, approach getting the correct exposure in every deal. As you mentioned, in the public markets, we're seeing the public crypto markets. We're seeing quite a bit of volatility recently. Um, as of you know this recording, we have Bitcoin in the mid mid low twenties, Ethereum and what is it like twelve thirteen hundred plus minus. Is it this sort of volatility that you're seeing in the private markets as well, similar or different? I would say private markets look very different from. Uh, you know, from public markets, public markets are almost like volatility as a service, right? It's there, um, you know, you see assets moving 10, 15, even percent in a day up and down. Um, you know, you have these uh, sort of um, just fast moves in, in either direction. In private equity markets, I think it takes a little bit longer for some of the processes to reach those markets. You know, in recent memory, I think the the typical um, uh, early stage seed round in crypto is still on average something like thirty million. So I've seen like twenty to forty million kind of range. Um, like as I said, we we do see some some indicators now of uh, maybe like some repricings in in private rounds that have been going on, uh, or maybe even like down rounds. So there is some like early indicators that that, that now in private equity. Uh, markets things could go down, but at the same time, it's like again, it's a it, regardless of of the price section. I think it's a great time to build in crypto um, for the next cycle, and these are really the times when when founders sort of are able to step away from the markets and and go uh, kind of produce like the best products for the next time around. So in the public equity markets, the high multiple stocks, we've seen quite a bit of compression. if not even more. In the private traditional venture markets, we've seen, you know, definitely some repricing. Some of our other guests have said somewhere 30 to 50% in general. In the public crypto markets, we're obviously seeing a lot of, you know, um, you know, repricing in terms of retracement, as you said, to numbers significantly lower than their all-time highs. What are you seeing as the last bastion for me, which is the private crypto markets, which seem to have navigated somewhat unscathed till more recently? What are you seeing these days? Are the prices coming in? Are they staying the same that they were a year ago? Is it cut by 10%, 90%, zero? Are they more expensive? Well, yeah. As I said, I think the private equity crypto markets have been have been um, kind of slower to adapt to the to the broader situation, but I do think like we see kind of early indicators that they might come in. I don't, I can't, I don't actually see 
them coming in right now, like based on the deals that we that we are in the middle of and, and are kind of seeing in the market. Um, but if, if this price action continues, I could see how people would get a lot more conservative on the investment side. Is there any other advice you would give to the listener as to how to approach a public crypto investment versus a private crypto investment? I think with crypto, as with any kind of nascent, volatile, um, developing space, um, your long-term orientation and long-term conviction space is probably your greatest ally. You know, um, I'm not saying that you should just hodl everything and not and not do risk management. I'm not saying that at all. Hodl meaning here, hold on for dear life, since not everybody here knows all crypto terms. Long-term hold, yeah, long-term hold, of course. Um, you know, I, I think I, I think generally, like people who are long-term aligned in the space, who wait out this market will enjoy sort of the next cycle, right? And some of the some of the best deals of the next cycle are present right now at, in this market at very low prices. And so the, the really um, disciplined market participant would have probably done a few things before today, before being in this market right now. And, and one of those things is probably like gotten rid of debt that they might have had, uh, like a lot of people take out loans with crypto collateral on platforms like MakerDAO or or other um, uh, lending lending protocols, right? And you know, when you have a big debt and everybody in the market is talking about a potential downturn, you know, just that talk creates some risks for you. And so, if you're if you're responsible, probably like three months ago, maybe even earlier than that, um, you would have started to lever down uh, some of your debt positions, and you would have started to uh, maybe even before that, like we had a you know, November, like a great November, right? We had we had some other like up market times between then and now. You would have taken out a little bit of cash and put it on the side, that knowing that if you go into a bear market and prices are collapsing dramatically as they are today, you know, you would have some cash to be able to deploy some, you know, into some cheap investments. So if you're if you're disciplined, if you know how to manage risk, I think there's actually you know a lot of people say bloodbath, but I say like opportunity bath. <laughs> You're uh, you're a quote machine between you know innovation investor volatility as a service. Um, I love it. Uh, opportunity bath. We all want an opportunity bath. That's for sure. <laughs> what would you say is the things you have learned closing in on your seven year anniversary that you would want to teach your previous founding CEO self? What would you try to tell Jake seven years ago that you know now? I think like a lot of investors coming into the crypto space as new participants or really like any space that is new, they generally have a choice. They they have a tool set of like how to understand what's happening. And so for example, some investors use analogies, right? They, um, they say, well, you know, I've been through the dot com era and I've seen how early spaces develop and I'm going to apply some of the learnings from that to, to the new thing. Um, And then the other tool set one of the other tool sets is is acting from first principles, meaning you know looking at an asset like a fully decentralized digital currency and realizing like it doesn't quite like it looks like a stock it has a stock chart, it moves around like a stock, but it's not a stock like it's fundamentally like structurally a very very different thing, and then being able to kind of like take first principles and understand how to evaluate this new thing or how it might be priced or what dynamics it might have or like 
you know, a stock can go to zero. It could be delisted from an exchange, but a decentralized cryptocurrency might never go to zero because even if it's delisted from all the exchanges, it's still kind of like accessible in a decentralized, open, peer-to-peer way. Does that mean that people will trade it even though it's delisted? We've seen some examples of that. And so I think like the problem with analogies is that analogies go so far and then they break. And if you don't realize that your analogy has broken, you're going to, you're going to come and reach like sort of the wrong, the wrong conclusion. Um, And then the problem with thinking from first principles is that it's incredibly hard. You know, a lot of people kind of train their hand on, you know, equities or whatever space of expertise they have. And then, um, and then it's sort of hard to go back to a really like foundational principle. The other thing is like knowing your own biases. I think like one of the, one of like the core skill sets that I've developed in crypto over the years is just like understanding biases and like when you might fall under them. So for example, a lot of people will say, you know, you don't really need, you know, whatever it is, NFTs or you don't really need a computer to order a pizza because you have a phone and you don't really need a car to go somewhere because you have a horse. Right. Um, but that's a bias. It's, it's, a, it's a bias which doesn't see like that those types of things don't stop people from wanting to innovate, to wanting to create new technologies. And a lot of times technologies aren't there because they're efficient, but just because they're generational. And that's very, very much the case with you know, things like DeFi and, and, and crypto broadly. And another like really important bias is, and, and folks in crypto have talked about this a lot, um, you know, people like look at like the state of Web three today, and they say, "This is really slow. Like, why would this ever like <laughs> replace Web 2? It's like fundamentally broken because it's slow." And 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 the problem with that reasoning is like, it's slow today, but you're not thinking about what it's actually going to develop into in the future. It's almost kind of like giving up on the internet at the point of the you know telephone modem because <laughs> the internet is too slow. But as you can see today. I mean, we're on a video chat, which in the 90s was something that you only saw on Star Trek. It reminds me of when people were able to finally watch NCAA tournament games online and get to pick whichever game they wanted to watch instead of having to wait to see it on TV when there was only one channel. And people would say, why would I do that? I could just wait till they show me the highlights on TV. And now fast forward, you could watch any game at any time fully recorded digitally. So it's just fascinating. It did take a long time, though, you know, a solid 15, 20 years. So it is interesting, you know, how long it takes. And, and by the way, I actually have a thread on Twitter I posted the other day about maybe about like eight eight biases or so that, that people tend to fall under um, or fall into. And I'm happy to share that. Yeah, please do. What are your biases? Uh, well, you know, my biases are kind of like pro-crypto and anti-trad tech a little bit. So, for example, you know, I tend to prefer like digital or decentralized network investments over like traditional SaaS. But there's some investors who are like exceptionally like great in investing in SaaS companies. And they just have that like deep level of expertise and they know exactly how to evaluate them. And they know exactly what these companies like need to do to succeed and become huge multi-billion dollar firms. I don't have that. I think it's, I think my, my expertise is much more like on the technological depths of 
blockchain technology and how it works. And so, um, you know, and, and many times those types of investments are less binary because we're dealing with publicly traded digital assets. So kind of my bias is toward the newer, you know, sort of more innovative technology while acknowledging that things like SaaS are still very useful in our, in our field. Great. What are the trends or the directions of the future that you're looking to invest into? Are there a particular thesis that you have that you're trying to like lock in on those types of investments, i.e. predictions for the next three years? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We're a trend and thesis driven firm. And so what we will do is we will develop kind of early views on where verticals might go, which verticals are going to, you know, sort of inflect earlier, you know, who is likely to to go um, create like mainstream adoption sooner than other areas. And I'll tell you um, where, well, uh, we have a lot of folks at CoinFund looking at many, many different things, but I'll tell you where I personally am seeing uh, sort of early um, thesis, uh, theses uh, kind of develop. So spent a lot of time in layer one, layer two, uh, you know, scalability and interoperability technologies. Um, and in particular, interoperability has been super interesting lately because we kind of went from this earlier type of interoperability where everyone built bridges between blockchains and we're trying to send tokens back and forth to this kind of more modern and more general uh, way of interoperability, which creates omni-chain assets. So these are more like what Layer Zero is doing, what Abacus Network is doing, um, where you know people can actually issue tokens on all the blockchains at once or issues NFTs on all the blockchains or read uh, state between one blockchain and another in the course of executing a smart contract or even call a method on a smart contract on a different blockchain. So this type of newer interoperability is super fascinating because I think what it does is it starts to obfuscate, you know, the back end from the mainstream user. Like, like why should people care what blockchain they're on when they're buying NFTs? Like when you're driving your Tesla, are you thinking about the data center that is being used to train your AI model that's driving your autopilot in your Tesla? Absolutely not. You just focus on driving and not crashing into something. And in the same way, you know, early blockchain communities are very tribal about which blockchains their like NFTs live on. But when we go to mainstream market, I think it's more about the NFTs, not about the backends that they that they live on. And so omnichain technology and, and interoperability technology in general, you know, I think will do a lot to refocus kind of users on the business side of what they're doing and not the infrastructure side. And that will actually create much better conditions for, you know, mainstream adoption. So that's like one area where I spend a ton of time. Another area where we're super early is NFTs, of course, um, early investors in Dapper in 2018, pre-seeders of Rarible uh, in 2020, co-leads of Upshot.io, which is creating uh, NFT reference pricing technology through machine learning. You know many other companies in that in that area, and the and the the view is like, well, what's next in NFTs? Well, just like we wrote about in 2020, what's next in NFTs is that NFTs are extending to like many 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 other new uh, vertical types. So it's not just art, not just in game assets, not just collectibles anymore. It's now starting to look like music, starting to look like movies, starting to look like tokenizing things we've never tokenized before, like blog posts. Check out what Mirror.xyz is doing, you know, in that area. Um, and, and so one part of the thesis is just like NFT proliferation across many different areas. And then the other 
part of the thesis is NFT financialization. Once everything is tokenized as NFTs, once the deed to your house or the title of your car, you know, is tokenized as an NFT. Well, of course, you want to do finance on it. You want to um, you want to have a service that prices your asset. You want to have a service that um, allows you to deposit your NFT for that asset as collateral and allows you to withdraw a loan. So borrowing and lending, you know, maybe derivatives on, uh, on certain things, maybe short selling, maybe indices of different NFTs in different areas that allow you to invest easily and get kind of broad spectrum exposure to different areas. So NFT financialization is super interesting because it's like the next leg of DeFi applied to non-fungible assets and frankly, those assets are much more numerous in the world than fungible assets. Um, and the, the very, very last thing I'll say in NFTs, and, and then I'll, I'll be quiet. Um, I'm very excited about all of this. Um, but is, you know, we saw NFTs really uh, inflect with centralized marketplaces, things like OpenSea, you know, Rarible. And what is very clearly happening now, and again, something we wrote about in 2020 is that now NFT exchange is starting to go into the protocol layer. So even NFT has released something like a Seaport set of smart contracts where you can start to um, transact like permissionlessly in these NFT, um, uh, you know, in, in NFT exchange. You have Rarible protocol, you have Zora, you have Reservoir protocol, you have Holograph, you have many, many folks going after that, that use case. And so what I envision is that just like in, DEXs came along and they kind of consolidated a lot of, um, you know, kind of the permissionless uh, token trading volume. Sorry, DEXs being decentralized exchanges. Decentralized exchanges. Just like that happened, I think these new protocols for NFT exchange are going to start to take a lot more of the volume of NFT trading over time and, you know, take it away from centralized marketplaces. Got it. So instead of trading on OpenSea, we'll be trading on one of these DEXs of NFTs. Yeah. And, and what, what's absolutely clear is kind of this monolithic model that OpenSea has where every kind of NFT is, is, um, is referenceable there. You know, it's not very sustainable. Like, like if NFTs are going to be applied to, you know, art but also like biomed investments, they can't possibly have the same user experience. That doesn't make sense. Or, or if you're doing like real estate with NFTs, that's not the same user experience as you know, searching through collectibles. And so what, what is very obvious is that there needs to be a, a segmentation of user experiences for the different kinds of NFTs that are coming up. And that's precisely why um, you know, NFTs are protocolizing it's because that's the natural architecture to start to create thousands and thousands of different um, specialized marketplaces. So that's really the trend is like white labels and dedicated marketplaces over time. And are those your two main uh, thesis slash trends, which is one layer one to layer two interoperability and two NFTs, verticalization, user experience improvement and financialization? We spend a large amounts of time there. I would say one other like much earlier one, but an exciting one is the intersection of AI and crypto. So we're starting to see like a lot of advancements in um, neural network models like Dolly, like Midjourney, like Google's Imogen, uh, like GPT-3, right? Um, and I think there's some interesting advantages that AI teams can get 
by formulating some of those companies as crypto networks or crypto companies. We've actually made our first crypto AI investment in a company called Jensen.ai, which is a decentralized network for fitting AI models. And I, I expect that we're going to be doing a lot more work in that intersection in the coming years. Why does AI need to sit on top of crypto? I don't think it does. Um, but again, I think there are some interesting advantages that a founder could get from crypto that would allow them to compete. Let me just say, this is like totally hypothetical, but um, you know, GPT-3 is like a $15 million computation. You know, that's how much it costs to train the neural network for GPT-3. And then something like Dolly, which is very impressive. It's like you give it some text and it shows you a picture or a painting of whatever you said. Um, that's actually a much cheaper model of fit. Something like I was told it's been it was something like three hundred thousand dollars. And so what we're seeing is that one of the reasons that these AIs are getting so good now is because we've achieved scale. We can create like really big neural networks that cost a lot of money to train. And so there must be some at least a little bit of a competitive advantage. Like if I can crowdfund enough money to fit like a $50 million model or a hundred million dollar model. Right. Uh, and that's something that's, I think very doable in crypto um, in terms of the capital formation piece, because back in the traditional world, those types of things are only going to be done by like big tech companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook, right. And Apple. Um, but here's an interesting way where crypto can start to, compete with big tech um, by using some of its like core advantages. Awesome. I love the word crowdfund to come up every now and then given my Indiegogo background. Going back to your layer one, layer two, not everybody knows what layer two means. So layer one is like Ethereum or Solana, kind of one of the building blocks of how um, you know crypto is being built for the blockchain. What is a layer two exactly? Um, a layer two is kind of an extension network on these foundational blockchains that um, essentially create like a lot more efficiency for users in the form of higher throughput, cheaper transactions. Uh, at times in certain networks, you can get like more privacy um, doing it that way and, and so on. And so the idea is like bringing products to mainstream market over the last five years has proven very difficult on layer ones because they're expensive. You know, they price out a lot of customers because fees can be $50 a transaction or $100 a transaction at times. And layer two technologies aim to solve that problem. And can you give an example of like how they would do that? So let's say, for example, doing a transaction on Ethereum to be able to send some token or to buy some NFT costs $50. How will, you know, XYZ layer two change that? I mean, the principle behind it is like when you transact on a layer one, you're going kind of like directly, you know, to the consensus, to the really like big security machinery of the blockchain. You're paying a lot for that. And you're getting like a very strong guarantee that like when your transaction is sort of finalized, it's going to be in the blockchain for a long time. And what layer two essentially does in principle is it says, um, we're going to give you a credible threat of going on chain, but we're not actually going to go on chain until we need to, until there's something untoward or we need to prove that, uh, you know, this transaction needs like super high security or, or something went wrong and someone tried to abuse the system, right? And by, by kind of like pushing off the settlement of those transactions into the future, what it allows us to do is just to have 
like a much higher throughput and much cheaper throughput because we don't have to get to that machinery just yet. I hope that makes sense. But uh, but essentially, yeah, essentially there are networks that have a, their own set of validators and they'll publish some state to, you know, kind of like their settlement blockchain, um, but they won't put that information on chain until they really need to. I know you don't like the analogies too much because they break, but it reminds me a little bit of when we were trying to expand internet to speed up and go further. And it used to always be that the application would have to hit the internet all the way back to the origin of the information. And then out came organizations like Akamai and others Mm -hmm. that started to figure out how to cache, you know, some of that information more locally so that you didn't have to spend as much time and processing power to go back to the origin, as you say, Ethereum, you know, back to the mothership. So it's similar but different, but I can see how, you know, we're kind of learning from the past. Well, the other thing to say is, um, you know, these days, like layer two, like it's one proposed architecture for uh, for higher throughput in blockchains. But we're also seeing like new L1 technologies come out that are also like very fast. So different blockchains might solve scalability, like even on the layer one level, it's, you know, it's... Like layer two is not an end-all be-all. It's a proposal for uh, for scaling. Is there a particular L1 you would want to highlight today? A particular layer one, L1, uh, that people should look out for? Have you ever heard of Ethereum? <laughs> <laughs> is that where you want I mean, to end it? Um, I would say, you know, I, I would say this about layer ones. I would say, like, um, there's a bunch of layer ones out there. Um, there's a bunch of incumbents. You know, we're definitely a firm that has invested across different layer one ecosystems. Like we were early investors in Polkadot in 2017. Uh, we invested, invested in Flow. We actually helped us, helped us specify the Flow blockchain. We invested in Near. We have a, a position in Solana and so on. So we, are, we really believe in a multi-base layer uh, world. But I, I would also say it's like, like today, right now, it's hard to compete as a base layer. If you're a team starting a base layer, you have this problem ahead of you where you have to build an entire developer community, you know, an entire user community, an entire um, miner or validator community, right? And it is not easy to do that anymore. There was a time when it was easy. It is much harder now. And so we see like newer uh, proposals for L1s as as sort of more risky these days. So going to your uh, second thesis, the NFTs, so uh, you mentioned it'll be expanding into other verticals. And people talk about this romantic use case of, oh, you know, NFTs are going to be the way we attend sporting events and concerts. You know, that's a pretty straightforward one. When is that going to happen in reality? Not like when is the first most innovative person going to do it? When is, you know, our friend that doesn't know a ton about blockchain going to need to use their NFT to go to the U2 concert or to go to the, you know, uh, Doja Cat concert or, or you name the concert? You know, it's so interesting. So I would say like kind of the turning point for me that I observed when NFTs started to go early mainstream was just about like February or March of 2021. Um, and that's around the time when like NFTs were on Saturday night live in, in, in the U S right. And it was like a pretty good indicator that, Hey, like we have some early kind of mainstream acceptance here. And I think that moment at that moment, like a lot of corporate R and D kicked off and corporate R and D is on the cycle of like years, right? It's, to, for a corporation to like get interested in the technology and then to turn around a product, you know, we're talking probably like year and a half to two years. Of course, this bear market isn't helping right now, probably. Um, but I expect that we're going to see a lot more 
kind of corporate plays for, you know, that, that are integrating NFTs this year and, and by the end of the year and, and, and going forward. But look, we already have a bunch of data points on this. We have Nike and Adidas participating. We have Instagram and Twitter integrating NFTs. And in fact, I think Instagram is integrating the Flow blockchain as well. Um, Twitter has done the, the profile pick where you could like choose some NFTs from Ethereum and, and get them verified. Right. So this, this process is in flight, but we're still, we're still like pre mainstream adoption, even of NFTs, even though we've gotten like early acceptance of NFTs, most of the participants in NFTs are still enthusiasts. And um, I wonder what the bottleneck is. I think it's probably still wallets and kind of costs of blockchains uh, onboarding, right? Um, but it's getting better and better. And you could really feel that a lot of new consumer tech products are coming to market. Like check out, like, I don't know, Superlocal, right? Superlocal is a, if you remember Foursquare from back in 2011, it's kind of like a Web3 crypto version of Foursquare. It's now on your phone. You don't really need anything to get started. You can earn tokens like right in the app. Um, you know, so we're starting to see like more of this stuff become a lot more accessible. And the last thing I'll say is, as the NFT has, space has grown over the last year and a half, it seems to be converting mainstream people into crypto people faster than the NFT space is sort of like coming to mainstream market, if that makes sense, right? So sort of heading for mainstream market, but people are jumping on board and becoming like NFT native before that even happens. So if I put you on the spot, which, you know, you don't need to be a Coldplay fan or anything, but when will Coldplay, as an example, um, be using NFTs for their attendees for concerts? When will you have to, not optional? What, and give me a, give me a quarter in a year. Listen, that particular example is very tough because what you're talking about is ticketing. And I think ticketing is like an extremely diff- difficult um area to break into for for nfts I, I think it's a it's an area that has a lot of like pre-existing relationships and contracts with like venues and a lot of like really monopolistic incumbents absolutely and just like in the in the music world where like the labels uh, traditional labels they kind of like own a lot of like the rights to music and they're not really about to let them go very soon in the same way i think ticketing is tough so that particular use case that you're talking about I think it's far off. I think it's like five to 10 years off. But are there other use cases where we're going to see NFTs like in the popular mainstream? Absolutely. I think record labels are looking at minting album art as NFTs. I think, um, you know, people in real estate are looking to tokenize interests in, in real estate using NFTs. Like look at what Proppy is doing, um, you know, and others. Like I think we're going to see mainstream use cases like over the next two years as web three starts to kind of eat web two and social media, you know, maybe even like physical products a little bit um, and things like that. Awesome. So my last question about NFTs. So we've been seeing volatility right now on the public, you know, blue chip tokens, Ethereum, Bitcoin, et cetera. And at the same time, some of the major NFTs have seen their floors, you know, really start to go down considerably. So like using as, let's see, like Bored Apes, you know, as an example, I think they touched like 70 or something earlier today from, a, you know, a high floor from, you know, significantly higher than that, closer to double. What do you think of 
you know, the latest news and the latest kind of run on, let's call it the banks, et cetera, and its impact on NFTs, whether it's pricing or adoption. So that's like a very big question, but take it wherever you'd like. Yeah. So a few things to say. Well, first of all, let's just take a look at 30 day volume. Um, like NFT volume has definitely come off, right? So we've, you know, in the, in the last couple months, we've seen, you know, kind of 30 day volume be at around 3 billion. Right now it's like 1.2 billion in the last 30 days. So we're definitely seeing a drop off there. Um, I would say, you know, for folks who follow me on Twitter, you might be familiar with the fact that I'm, I'm a huge like antagonist of floor pricing. I think floor pricing is a terrible metric. Floor pricing isn't really pricing. It's sell offers. It's highly manipulable. It's a bad uh, way of summarizing what might be happening in the sales of like mid range or high or expensive, you know, units of that series. You know, so I've written a lot about this, but, but you're right. Like there is a, there is a drop off in volume. There is a drop off in, in floor pricing. And, you know, I've been through enough crypto cycles to know that it's just sort of part of the cycle and it will definitely come back. I don't see anything like existential, um, existentially threatening to NFTs that you know will will kill them or anything like that. It's just people are reacting to market conditions. And by the way, some of our researchers at Metaversal, which is a company in the NFT space that we've uh, incubated and accelerated, like they had an interesting metric the other week where it would you know they showed that like ether denominated volume was going down in NFT world, especially in like Ethereum things while the number of units sold was actually going up. And so what that would suggest that is like people were like piling into what they saw as like cheap NFT assets to sort of position for the next cycle, um, you know, while overall kind of market sentiment was going down. Great. And closing in towards the end of the conversation, a lot of people are going to be super impressed with this conversation. Some people will say, I'm not sure if I understood half of it. How do we keep up with what you know? What do you listen to? What do you read? What do you watch? You know, how could we be more like you? I mean, it's a great question. So obviously follow me and CoinFund on Twitter. So I'm at J-B-R-U-K-H, J-Brook, and CoinFund is at CoinFund underscore IO. We have a blog, blog blog.coinfund.io. A lot of our analysts publish uh, tweet threads and you know, and, 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 and uh, articles on, on Mirror.xyz and other places where they talk about areas of the space. You know, if you're in New York, Boston, or Miami, like engage our team, or if you come to conferences, engage our team. Um, you know, and we have a few sort of like Telegram channels, if we know you, and um, where we, we post kind of market color and things like that. But anything else that you could share personally that you like to watch, like you personally, that you like to read personally? Yeah, I um, you know, I like I appreciate some of the podcasting work that recently has been done by uh, uh, Carly Riley at uh, Overpriced JPEGs. I thought we had a great uh, episode last time around. Um, you know, I definitely, I definitely have a reading list, um, but it's quite, it's quite diverse. Give, give us some examples. It. Sure. Um, let's see. What have I been reading lately? I've been reading a lot on, on AI. And so recently, like really cool, really cool uh, kind of like philosophical post by Josh Stark called Adams Institutions Blockchains, I thought was um, really great. And one of our portfolio companies, Orca Protocol, 
the CEO, Julia Rosenberg, uh, wrote an article called Scaling Trust in DAOs, Trustware versus Socialware, which was, I thought, like a really awesome uh, positioning for kind of how to think about DAO technology. And if you're interested in sort of like general tech social media zeitgeist, highly recommend this post called The Internet of Beefs by Venkatesh Rao, which kind of highlights some of the problems we have with, in social media and, and uh, maybe gets us thinking about how we might start to work past some of those problems. Beefs like the meat? crypto. That's right. Okay, great. Internet of beefs. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, for sharing that. The last question is we like to put you on the spot, which is what investment would you suggest today for our listeners or yourself or, you know, in general, that three years from now, when we have you back on the show, that we could talk about how smart of investment you, th- you made in- as an idea or how bad that was. So what would you bet on right now for three years out? And it could be anything well, in the alternative, you, alternative investment space. If you look at the market cap of crypto, more than 90% of it, uh, probably more than 90% of it is explained by base layers. It's Bitcoin, Ethereum, alternative base layers, right? So it seems to suggest that this is like a really foundational, um, you know, aspect of the, of the space. And so if you were to go long for a long time, it would probably make sense to invest in some base layers. So I would recommend, you know, for people who are hands off, and, and when I say recommend, it's not investment advice, um, I would say, you know, those are probably things to hold long-term. So invest in layer ones. I think so. I love it. And how many would you put in that basket? Three, five, 20? Not too many. I think if you're going to invest in layer one, make sure it's the one where you have some, some kind of advantage. It's the one where you really understand the tech or you're active in the community or you saw it early or, um, you know, or, 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 you know, the team or like, like great understanding of what you're investing into is going to translate into better long-term results. I love it. Thank you so much. This has been an awesome conversation, Jake. Uh, we learned so much from you being an innovation investor, being early from 2013 into Bitcoin, volatility as a service. I guess that's what a lot of people want to do when they don't have you know, um, casinos, they get to do crypto. And you said, instead of a bloodbath, <laughs> it's an opportunity bath, which is a great perspective. You gave us the three themes you like to look at which is layer one to layer two interoperability, NFTs as they continue to expand, and AI where it meets crypto and the benefits you can have from there. I love your quote. Have you heard of Ethereum? That was great. Have you heard of ETH? <laughs> uh, NFTs are challenged right now. The markets have gone from $3 billion in terms of 30-day trading to $1.2 billion, but you still believe in it in the long term. And your bet for the future is definitely a basket of layer ones. Thank you, Jake. Thank you for having me, Slava. Smart Humans with Slava Rubin is a podcast brought to you by the team at Vincent. Any data, text, or other content in this podcast is provided as general market information and not as investment advice. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future results. For more information on alternative investing, check out Vincent at www.withvincent.com.